Matthew chapter 8. We'll be in verses 28 down to the end of the chapter. We'll be finishing our study in Matthew in this chapter this morning. Uh, next week will be Easter Sunday. Um, we'll be in 2 Corinthians 4, looking at the power of the resurrection from there. And uh, let me encourage you all, if you're able to uh, attend the 8 o'clock uh, service next week, just to make more room for the number of visitors we have. I mean, come whenever you want to, but they asked me to say that, so I say it. <laughs> if you come to the 8 o'clock, you beat the Methodists to, to Easter brunch. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we do ask for your mercy to be upon us. We know that if we relied on our own strength to understand your word, we'd be left in the darkness. If we relied on our own initiative to achieve spiritual life, we'd be left dead. But we're thankful that you leave us not to our own strength or to our own will or devices, but rather you give us light through your word. You give us light through your spirit who causes our souls to become alive through faith and causes our eyes to see the truth in your word. So we pray that what we read this morning would cause us to grow more into the image of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 8, we ended this morning, but it has been a really surprising chapter filled with one unpredictable scene after another, one really outlandish attestation of Jesus' authority after another. If you remember, this whole chapter is flowing out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus claimed for himself the authority to reorient the world around himself. He came preaching a gospel that he said would go to the Gentiles, a gospel that would go to those who were Romans, who didn't even know the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he came saying that you could put your faith in him and you'd be saved. And he came to the Jews saying, you've heard the Pharisees say, you've heard that the Torah said this and that and the other thing, but I say to you something different. And so he, he changed the whole religion of the Jews. He discarded it and replaced it with his own teaching, his own direction about what it takes to have eternal life and so the question at the end of the sermon at the end of Matthew 7 is who exactly does he think he is who has that kind of authority to reorient the world around himself and then Matthew 8 and Matthew 9 is a series of miracles a series of in some cases teaching radical teaching and unprecedented miracles that establish that Jesus Christ has the authority to tell you what you're supposed to believe. That's the point of these miracles. And as I mentioned, they were one really outrageous one after another. It began with him touching a leper. Who touches a leper? You know, even today, <laughs> nurses will put on the hazmat suits and everything. Jesus touches the leper and heals him. And then from there, it goes to a centurion, a Roman centurion, a, an officer in the Roman military who has a slave who's, who's sick or a servant who's sick and the Pharisees go to Jesus asking for a favor for the Roman centurion because the centurion built the Jewish synagogue. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd, but it's what happens. And Jesus, of course, heals the centurion's servant from a distance, doesn't even go to the house. Followed by Matthew saying that Jesus did miracles to show that he fulfills probably the most well-known, the most significant, the most important messianic prophecy there is from Isaiah 53, that he took our sins and our sorrows, he took our trespasses and our diseases on himself. That's described in verse 17. And then after that, Jesus tells people that 
They need to surrender their life and follow him. That he is more important than their relationship with their family. That he's more important than their relationship to comforts. That it's better to follow Jesus and sleep on a rock than have a nice house. That it's better to walk away from your family and follow Christ than to keep in a good relationship with your family without Christ. I mean, who says that kind of thing? Jesus does. And of course, last week he's on the stormy Sea of Galilee with the boat being sunk by the wind and the waves and he gets up and dismisses the wind and the waves and says, shh, trying to sleep over here. And they go away, leaving the disciples seasick, leaving the disciples filled with with fear. And this morning we encounter... Again, another one of these miracles. It's almost like this chapter has peaked too early. After each one of these paragraphs, you think, can something more outlandish happen next? And the answer is always yes. With Jesus, it's always yes. It's always going to get crazier. And that's what happens this morning. So far, to put it another way, we've seen Jesus' authority over disease with the leper, over distance with a centurion's servant, over prophecy with him fulfilling Isaiah, over people by him telling him people to surrender their lives and follow him. We've seen his authority over the natural world with wreaking the wind and the waves. And now we see his authority over the supernatural world. He establishes that he has authority over even the demons. Let's read the passage together, beginning in verse 28 down through verse 34. I'll read it for us. He came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he heard them. And Jesus said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. If you remember, this happened after the crossing of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been ministering in the Capernaum on the west, really the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds had forced him into the water and now the crowds have forced him to cross. He's getting away from the the masses. He crosses the sea at night, rebukes the wind and the waves. There would have been this little flotilla uh, going with him. Other boats, Mark and Luke describe going with him across. There was, you know, an entourage that was following him. John lets us know that many of the Jews headed out on foot to get around to catch up to Jesus, but he gets there ahead of all of them. He's there with his disciples. This is the Gadarenes. This is the Decapolis area. It means 10 cities. It's a little province in the Roman Empire. It used to be part of Israel, but Pompey separated it from Israel and made it its own area. It's almost entirely Gentile, meaning most Jews aren't there. The Sea of Galilee, picture like a, you know, an oval, and at the, the bottom end of it is the city of Tiberias, which the Romans built upon a graveyard. Jews would not pass through Tiberias. So if you were in the Sea of Galilee region and you wanted to get to Jerusalem, you'd have to go around Tiberias and down the Jordan River or maybe even out to the Mediterranean towards Carmel and down towards modern-day Tel Aviv and then up to Jerusalem. If you went the other way around the Sea of Galilee, there's the Jordan River that goes north and that's how you'd go up into Syria or modern-day Lebanon. But if you were to cross it 
and go across it. Those are the, the heights up there, the, the, the mountains up there. And this is where the Syrians used to launch rockets in our day and age over the top of the, the heights down towards the, the Israelites over the Sea of Galilee. This is all, you know, Israel now owns a buffer there. And that other side is very desolate. There's these cliffs, hills there now, and now there's a little two-lane highway that runs along the backside of the Sea of Galilee, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Remember, it's the, the sea is a, a circle, and there's really nothing on the opposite side of it, so you, would, you wouldn't really need to drive over there. There's some like little hotels there now is where tourist buses are the only thing over there. <laughs> In Jesus' lifetime, there'd be no reason to walk along that side unless you lived out there and you were part of the Decapolis, and even then, you would just head up into Syria. If you wanted to get back into Israel, you could go down towards Tiberias or you could go the, the north way and up over the top of it and that's that little road that's there. But again, this is mostly Gentile area. Jesus heads there now, crosses the sea and finds himself in Gentile territory in this Decapolis. What he finds there, it says in verse 28, is two demon-possessed men who came out to meet him. Now, Mark and Luke tell the same story and they add some other details. So you take all three of the stories together, you get really a full picture. And that's the way the New Testament works with the synoptic gospels. By the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact is established. And so all three of these witnesses provide their own corroborating details to the account. Matthew lets you know there's two of these demon-possessed men. Mark lets you know that one was more strong or more severe than the others. Luke lets you know that they were running around naked. They weren't wearing clothes. Mark said that the people tried to put them in chains and that one of them in particular kept breaking off the chains. And that one would grab stones and would cut himself. He was self-harming himself to deal with the pain of suffering that he was going through because he was demon-possessed. Because the, this hill there, the graves, they didn't bury in the ground. I mean, it's pretty much rock there. They would have these caves and they put the bodies in the caves there. And these men were living in the caves. And it's a steep hill down to the, the ocean there, or down to the Mediterranean, I mean, sorry, down to the Sea of Galilee there. And you couldn't pass that way underneath them, Mark lets you know, because these people would run down. In fact, Matthew says that at the end of verse 28. So they were so fierce, these two men, that were filled with demons, that nobody could pass that way. They're closing off the whole passage around that side of the Sea of Galilee. Again, it's not a very busy road. Nevertheless, if you lived over there, you're now trapped. You can go down one way through the sea of Gal by the Sea of Galilee and cross the Jordan to Tiberias, but you can't go the other way without this road unless you go all the way up into Syria and around the backside of it that way so this is a serious issue that these gentiles are dealing with these demon possessed men now the word demon possessed there just means that they're demonized is the word it means they have demons afflicting them or i don't think it's a technical term to mean the demons are in them although certainly the demons do possess them the demons take over their voices here uh, mark lets you know and speak on their behalf but these demons are hounding them attacking them taking over their bodies, making them miserable people. These people are, are, you know, the devil has robbed them of their dignity, robbed them of their, their modesty. They're running around naked, robbed them of their sanity, robbed them of their homes. They're living out abandoned in the wilderness. Mark lets you know when Jesus crosses, he sees the tomb in the distance and Jesus tells the demons to get out of him. 
And what happens then is that at least one of them runs down the hill at Jesus. I mean, imagine the scene. He's off the boat. He sees the men coming out of the, the graves. And Jesus knows they're demon-possessed and tells the demons to leave him. And so the man runs down in his, his anger and in his energy down the hill and throws himself not onto Jesus but at his feet. This is the spiritual showdown that we encounter here. A ferocious and wicked demonically possessed man, a second demonically possessed man as well. The first one strong enough to break chains, stronger than any posse in the region who certainly would have tried to capture him. And he hurls himself at Jesus. That's the conflict in the devil, that the devil's opposed to Christ, but here this demon-possessed man flings himself at Jesus' feet. What follows is really an outrageous scene. Let me give you an outline to go through it. Three graveyard surprises that attested Jesus' authority. Our three cemetery surprises. Homeschooling alliteration there. Three cemetery surprises that affirm Jesus' authority. I'm giving you this as the outline because the most common word in this passage is the word behold. You see it three different times. It's a word that indicates surprise. Matthew's saying, and check this out. That would be the Jesse standard version. would be, check this out. You're not going to believe this. Get a hold of this. And this is a word that Matthew uses a lot in his gospel to indicate surprise. surprise. But he uses it 11 times in this passage, Matthew 8 and 9. 11 times Jesus does one surprising thing after another to show his authority. And in this passage, it's used three times. There's really three surprises that await us in this passage. Let's look at them one at a time. The first surprise is a surprising confession. A surprising confession. As I mentioned, these demonically possessed men run down. One of them flings himself at Jesus' feet, Mark lets you know. They meet Jesus. Verse 29, they cry out to him, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And there's that word, verse 29. Behold, check this out. They come to Jesus and they call him the Son of God. Now that's... Not normal. <laughs> Son of God is a very precise phrase. It's, it's a Trinitarian phrase. That God is exists in one being. There's one essence that is God. There's one being of God. But God exists in three persons. The Father is the, the first of the three members of the Trinity. And the, the Father has an image of himself. The, the essence or the being of God has an image of itself. And the image is exactly like the, the Father in every way, shape, or form. The Father pictures himself, and in every way, shape, and form, all of the essence of the Father, all of the nature, all of the attributes, all of the glory, all the ex- excellencies of the Father are embodied in this image. But the image is a separate person. Just like if you have your own image of yourself, that image is different than you are. It's, it's not you, it's your image of you. But with the Father, that image is perfect in every way. It's exactly like him in every way, shape, and form with all of his attributes, including the attribute of life and eternality, eternal existence. He's the eternal God, except it is the Son, a second person of the Trinity. The Father and the Son are identical in every way, shape, and form, except the Father begets or generates the Son. And the Son is begotten, or is the, is the Son. 
That's why we call the first member of the Trinity the Father and the second the Son. This is an eternal existence, an eternal arrangement. There was never a time where the Father was without the Son or he wouldn't be the Father. There was never a time where the Son did not exist. This is eternally in the past. Now demons know this. Demons recognize the Son of God when they encounter him. They've seen him before. Demons were made by the triune God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together, the three persons of the Trinity, sharing the same essence and glories and attributes of God. Together they created the universe. Together they created the angels. Together they created the earth. Together they created Adam. And the devil wanted control of the earth. He wanted to be the one that reigned on the earth. And so the devil rebels against God. When God makes Adam and gives the earth to Adam, the devil rebels against God and wants it for himself and goes and attacks Adam. And a third of the angels go with the devil. A third of the angels rebel against the authority of God and rebel against the authority of the Son of God as well, rebel against the the love of the Holy Spirit, rebel against Adam, and they take their hatred out on the earth. They go after Adam. And ever since then, that third of the angels has been attacking mankind. They don't have a particular Christological agenda. It's not that they're only attacking Christians or that they're only opposed to Christ. They are opposed to Christ, but they're opposed to people. Angels, fallen angels, hate people and want to inflict harm and suffering on them in any way possible. Nevertheless, the devil and all angels, fallen and unfallen alike, know who God is. They recognize who the Son of God is. So far in Matthew's gospel, you've only seen one other time where Jesus was identified as the Son of God. Sure, want to test. If you know it, slip up your hands. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the only other time so far in Matthew's gospel he's been identified as the Son of God is by the devil in the wilderness. And there it was conditional. The devil says, if you think you're the Son of God, if you really are the Son of God, then command these rocks to turn into bread. If you really are the son of God, then fling yourself off the top of the temple and let the angels catch you. If you really are the son of God. That was the devil's temptation, causing Jesus, if he's able to, question his own identity as God incarnate. And of course, Jesus resists the devil and says, it is written, you shall serve God alone. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the father's mouth that's Jesus resisting the devil will hear the demons likewise recognize who Jesus is and they confess that he's the son of God and he's not going to be confessed as the son of God again in Matthew's gospel until Peter says it we declare that you are the Christ the son of the living God I mean if you're curious and I was curious I looked at this phrase in the other gospels this week In Mark's gospel, Mark 1 verse 1, the author Mark identifies Jesus as the son of God. But after that, it's the demons that say, Jesus, you're the son of God in the synagogue when they're being cast out. And then in Mark's gospel, it's not again until the centurion at the end of the gospel. The centurion who's overseeing the crucifixion of Christ calls him the son of God. That's it in Mark's gospel. In Luke's gospel, it's the devil, of course. And demons, but Luke has one other. It's the Pharisees at Jesus' trial. And they say... Is it true that you're the son of God? You remember Jesus' response? You say that I am. (laughs) Turns it back against them. So Jesus is certainly the son of God in human flesh, but this is such a profound level of truth that it requires supernatural revelation to understand. That's why when Peter confesses that Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. 
<laughs> but my Father is in heaven revealed it to you. You don't, you don't get there without an understanding of the supernatural spiritual world. Well, fortunately for the demons, they have that understanding. You know the infrared goggles there, the in- night vision goggles let you see at night? <laughs> the demons have spirit vision, vision goggles. <laughs> they can look around and they see a person's spiritual condition. And here they recognize Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. And they say to him, what do you have to do with us? Stay away from us. Don't we have some kind of deal? And now, I wish the Bible said more about this, but if you get systematically the relationship between demons and God in the Bible, you can come up with a pretty comprehensive picture. A third of the angels rebelled against God and take out their hatred on mankind and attack mankind. A subset of those angels... So not all third of them, a subset of those angels cohabitate with people. This is back in Genesis 6. And they encounter the wrath of God for that. God floods the earth, destroys the earth because of it, and takes those cohabitating angels and puts them in prison, what I call angel jail. (laughs) Puts them in chains, in angel jail, where they will be held in angel jail until they are thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time. But the rest of the demons, so fallen angels that did not cohabitate in Genesis 6, they are allowed dominion on this earth to afflict and attack people on this earth. And that's what they spend their time doing. Now it seems that they can afflict and attack anybody they want to. However, for people that belong to God, for one of these people that are in a right relationship with God, by faith, they're one of God's children, it seems that demons and the devil need to ask God's permission to afflict them. And you see this in Job, where the devil wants to go after Job, but he must ask God's permission first. Or you see this with Peter, when the devil wants to go after Peter, and he must first ask the Son of God's permission to sift Peter. You know Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Only, only non-Christians can because the demons can't cohabitate with the Spirit of God in a person. But the demons can most certainly afflict even believers. The demons can attack believers. They just can't possess them. But they can only do so with the express permission of God. But on the other hand, with non-believers, they all are subject to the devil. Demons can attack whoever they want to if you're dealing in the category of non-believers. But it seems that they spend most of their focus attacking those who are outside of the influence of Christ. This matches what you see in the world today. I mean, especially in the New Testament, by the way. There's, I can't think of a single example other than Judas being filled with Satan's spirit. I can't think of a single example of a demon-possessed person in Jerusalem. The focus of the Jewish religion. Because they're following a false religion. They've been turned over to their own false worldview. It seems like demons focus their attack on people in more rural or underdeveloped areas or I don't know what the politically correct term, less advanced or economically developed areas. And you see that today in the world as well. There seems to be a lot more demonic activity in the overt way, like this kind of way, like demons taking control of people and causing them self-harm. You see that more frequently in more remote and underdeveloped parts of the world than you do in our own culture. I think in places where money is a God and success is a God and economic development is present, the devil is content to let people just pursue that. They don't need demonic involvement to harm themselves. 
And that seems to be the case here. Jesus finds these two people out in gatherings, out in the Decapolis, out in the Gentile territory. Now, God is allowing these demons free reign of the world. In fact, Ephesians 2 uh, even describes the devil as being the prince of the power of the air. He has dominion over this world in some sense. As long as he stays away from God's people, the devil rules this world. And then at the end of time, after the tribulation, seven-year tribulation described in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says, after that time, he'll set up his kingdom on earth. And after that kingdom, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says he will come back and he will take the demons that are in chains and he will take the demons that have had free reign of the world and he will throw them into the lake of fire that was prepared beforehand. So that happens after the kingdom, after the tribulation. That's all future. So imagine the demon's surprise right here. Here they are minding their own business in Gentile territory a long way away from the second coming of Christ. They know that Christ's first coming is coming for forgiveness and salvation. His second coming is coming for judgment and wrath. They know they've got time to afflict people. They've got time to harm people. So here they are minding their own business out in Gentile lands. And lo, who do they encounter but Jesus? Do you see their surprise? That's why he's running down to him. What are you? No disrespect, sir, but what are you doing here? <laughs> I thought we got to do this kind of stuff out here. That's their attitude. And they're scared, too. Have you come to torment us before the time? Demons know that their end is hell. Demons know that they will end up in the lake of fire. The Revelation 20, the lake of fire is prepared for the demons from, for their own destruction. But these demons thought, we, you know, we had a deal. Don't cohabitate with people and we get to harm people. And I said earlier, demons, today demons do still possess people. They do still attack people most frequently and in my experience in the underdeveloped worlds. But you see things in the news, like even in the United States, and you see, I mean, you think of like a school shooter kind of person or you think of somebody like Dr. Gosnell kind of person. You think what kind of evil can be in a person like it just exceeds in my understanding a human's capacity for evil to do that kind of thing i never want to underestimate the power of sin in an individual but it would not astonish me in the least bit to find out that people like that are demonically possessed that would make sense but here jesus encounters these two men they're demonically possessed but notice that the demons here they recognize jesus as the son of God. And they have good theology. Do you notice? They have good eschatology. These demons do. They're premillennial, pre-tribulational demons. <laughs> it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Where's the tribulation? Where's the kingdom? Come on, Jesus. Well, that's the first surprise. A surprising confession. Second surprise. A surprising destruction. I heard, verse 30 of many pigs was feeding some distance from them. Now, it's, they're, pigs are a ways away. Remember, people can't get close to these two demon-possessed men. They're in the graveyards. Pigs don't graze in graveyards here. The whole thing is rocky, and pigs, aren't, you know, they're not out really in grass. They mostly feed on slop kind of thing. But there's a massive herd of pigs a ways away from the graveyard. And again, you can go to this area. It's a, you know, the only people that go there now are American tourists. Like Israelites look at the area and roll their eyes, see the tour buses going out there. I mean, it's desolate out there. It's up on a hill. There's nothing up there. But you could imagine how the graveyard would, is the 
caves are below and the pigs could be a long way away on top of the hill but it is a very steep hill and the pigs could be all the way up at the top of it and they get their slop up there and they're not going to escape anywhere I mean they couldn't get down the cliff so there they are away from the demon possessed men top of the hill the demon spies them and say if you cast us out the demons are begging Jesus by the way You've got these praying demons here begging the Son of God for something. It's called praying. These demons are praying, begging God, saying, if you cast us out, and this is in the, what's called a first-class conditional in the Greek, you can tell the answer is yes. Like if you cast us out or when you cast us out would be a better way of translating it because Jesus began this not in Matthew but in Mark and Luke. Jesus started this by casting the demons out. So they know they're on their way out. Their bags are packed, so to speak. They're on their way out. But they say, when you cast us out, can you send us into the herd of pigs? Now that is a very strange request. Why would the demons want to go inside a herd of pigs? Well, there, <coughs> there's lots of answers commentaries give about it and the commentaries debate about it, so I'll save all the time and just give you the right answer. <laughs> the right answer is, I have no idea. That's the right answer. <laughs> I have no idea why the demons want to go into a herd of pigs. I mean, I don't know demon psychology here. <laughs> they want to go into the pigs. The pigs are going to die. Remember, the, they go into the pigs here. Jesus says, go. And they came out and they went into the pigs. By the way, in Mark's gospel, the, the, Jesus asked the demon what his name is. And he says, legion, because there are many. How many? Well, apparently at least 2,000 of them. So Jesus sends these 2,000 demon spirits into the pigs. Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank. Swine dive here. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) come on. (laughs) That's called low-hanging fruit. (laughs) And they drown in the waters. So these pigs are dead now. So did the demons know that the pigs would drown if they went into them? I have, again, I don't know what the demons knew. If the demons knew the pigs would drown, why did they want to go into them? When you look at Luke, Luke's gospel, it seems to say that demons like to be inhabiting people. They they like to have a home. They're they're disembodied spirits. You know, they don't have a, a personal on the earth a personal fleshly presentation and so they're they're more comfortable inside of people and you know Jesus even says to the the Jews you come across somebody demon possessed and you clean up their life on the outside and that sends the demon away and he comes back and brings seven of his friends his second condition is worse than his first and so that's the nature of a works righteousness religion a works righteousness religion finds somebody who's demon possessed and teaches him how to clean up his life which the demon is happy to have the life cleaned up and brings back more friends (laughs) By the way, today in our culture, you find somebody demon-possessed and you just over-medicate them and lock them up in a mental institution. I mean, seriously, that's what happens today. These demons, they want to be in a body. Jesus is throwing them out of this one. And look, there's pigs. Are the demons being irrational? Have they thought this through? Did they just want some form of destruction? they know that it would hurt this the economy if they killed all the pigs I mean maybe I have no idea they're demons but demons go in the pigs the pigs all die and this is surprising to Matthew the demons begged him saying let's go in the pigs and he said to them go and behold there's the word in the middle of verse 32 Matthew's surprised by this the whole group rushed down the bank 
And it's just a cascade of, of pigs. There's no, it's a steep hill. There's no stopping them. Just picture sausage links rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> and some, you know, it's t- typical Americans to read this and go, oh, the poor pigs. You know? I mean, what do you think they're being raised for? <laughs> they, well, not for their milk, I'll tell you that. Nothing happened to these pigs that wasn't going to happen to them anyway. It's just suddenly, it makes us feel better when it's one at a time, not <laughs> 2,000 at once here. <laughs> No Jew would read this and go, oh, the poor pigs. <laughs> a Jew would read this and probably laugh. <laughs> and be like, That's what you get. And pigs are unclean animals. And some commentaries say these were likely backslidden Jews raising the pigs. And I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. And they're probably Gentiles, I think. But if they are Jews that are going to raise 2,000 pigs, the best place to do it would be up in the Decapolis where nobody would care. Anyway, the pigs are over. Their career as pig raisers done. <laughs> and the pigs are destroyed. This leads to the third surprise. The third surprise, a surprising eviction. A surprising eviction. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled. You just wonder, what else could happen in the story that's more outrageous than anything we've seen so far? Well, you're going to get it. The herdsmen flee. They go into the city and they told everything because the herdsmen are responsible for the 2,000 pigs. I mean, they're not their pigs. They're just keeping watch over them. they got to come up with something here because now their pigs are dead. <laughs> and imagine the story. Honestly, this was not my fault. <laughs> we kept them away from the demons, I promise, but they can't. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Notice they focused especially on what happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, you know, there's, Matthew was the first gospel written, but Mark and Luke also convey this story. And Mark and Luke let you know what happened to the demon-possessed man. Matthew doesn't. His focus isn't the man. Although Mark, what I love about Mark's version is he focuses on what happened to the man. The man is now clothed in his right mind, Mark says. The man gets saved, puts his faith in Christ, and is sitting there. When the crowd comes out, they find him sitting down wearing nice clothes at Jesus' feet being taught by Jesus. (laughs) In fact, he says he wants to be an evangelist. He wants to go and join the disciples. Jesus forbids him, but that's a story from Mark's gospel. Now it's just part of the herdsman's story. They tell everybody what happened to the demon-possessed men. Behold, the whole city, here's the surprise. Surprise, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to tell them what they must do to be saved. (laughs) They said, oh, you have such authority over the devil and over demons. We want to be in a right relationship with God like you are. We want to have authority over demons. We want to know what it takes to be in a right relationship with God. Oh, please, sir, please tell us. No. They begged him. In the same, same, same word that was used earlier, the demons begging Jesus, now Jesus is being begged by the crowd to leave their region. Some commentators think, oh, they're happy, or they're sad about the pigs. They don't want Jesus there because they're out of business now. Well, listen, evicting Jesus is not going to get the pigs back. I think this is designed to be parallel to the calming of the storm, the passage earlier, where Jesus does something insane and it leaves everybody confident of two things. One, that this person is God in human flesh. Second, I'm not worthy to be before him. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and the disciples were filled with fear Would you rather have a hurricane outside the boat or the one who controls the hurricanes inside the boat? This is the same kind of scenario here. Jesus rebukes the demons and the the townspeople are filled with fear. 
They don't know what to do. What do you do with this kind of person? They, for years, they've been trying to chain this dude down, and they fail. Their main road out of town is closed. And Jesus comes in. The pigs are dead. The guy is wearing clothes and is in his right mind. The road is opened. What do you do with him? They say, they have the same attitude the demons did. Jesus, go back to where you came from. Go back to your side of the lake. We don't want anything to do with you ever again. They evict him. They evict him. Now notice the similarities between these people and the demons. They both beg Jesus. <laughs> they both want nothing to do with Jesus. And this is the impossibility of the human condition. You cannot be neutral towards Jesus. You just can't. Any more than the demons can. Demons aren't neutral towards Jesus as long as they stay in a zip code away from Christians. You cannot have a neutral attitude towards Christ. You either recognize that he is the son of God and you submit your life to him or you reject him by saying, hey, you do your thing, Jesus. Let me do mine. My life was so much happier before I encountered you. Just leave me alone. And that's the attitude people have towards Christ. I mean, there are those in the world who, like the, the demons, just fully reject Jesus' authority and want to fight against it. But I would say, especially in our own country, most people encounter Jesus in the Bible or through other Christians, and they say, hey, if that's fine for you, that's fine for you. Jesus might be true. I mean, I don't agree with all of his ethics, but keep him to yourself, and I'll keep my life to myself, okay? There's a moat between me and Jesus. But it's an impossibility. It's an impossibility because Jesus will judge everyone. He will judge everyone. He will judge every sinner. He will judge every sin. You can't proclaim neutrality towards him. And even if you could, what a naive thing to do. I mean, notice the hierarchy in this passage. Jesus outranks everybody. That's clear. The demons outrank the pigs, right? The demons outrank the pigs. They go in the pigs. The pigs die. The demons are in control. What about the people who reject Jesus? Where do they fit in this flow chart? And they got to walk out there by the pile of pigs on the shore. I'm sure many of them washed up. And they have the same attitude. The same attitude. 2,000 pigs, probably 2,000 people in the town. Both of which just want nothing to do with Jesus. The point here is that the demons were better off than the pigs. The demons are better off than the people. James makes the same point. Better to be a demon who at least knows the truth about God than a naive person who thinks, I plead ignorance. This passage, I think, establishes the authority of Christ over sin, the authority of Christ over the devil, the authority of Christ over demons. In the same way Jesus can transfer the demons from a person to a pig, he can do what... Matthew says in verse 8, 17, he can take our sins and our diseases and transfer them from us to him. He has the ability to be a substitute. He has the ability to, by his own command, to change and to move your sin from you to himself. If you reject Christ, you die for your own sin and you will be sent to the lake of fire where the, the demons will end up. But if you place your faith in Christ, you recognize his authority, then your sin is transferred from you to him.
Lord, we're thankful that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through you, that you have authority over the wind and the waves, over the natural world, and you have authority over the demons and the devil and over the supernatural world. We're grateful that you open up the way to eternal life. I pray for anyone who's here this morning that has never trusted you with their life. I pray today that they would see their salvation in no other person than Jesus Christ. There is no neutrality with you, Lord. We can't cover our eyes and plug our ears and pretend we don't know about you. You confront us, and this morning you confront us with your authority. We recognize your authority. We bow our knee before you. We know that in faith you forgive us our sins and we confess them before you. We're thankful that you rose from the grave. We look forward to celebrating that next Lord's Day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.